This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Mopac Audio. Thanks for downloading this bonus episode of the Yuba County Five. If you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. I'm Shannon McGarvey. Recently, I had the pleasure of chatting with Josh Clark, co-host of the prolific Stuff You Should Know podcast, which covered the Yuba County Five story back in 2018. We sat down to talk about his thoughts on the case, what drew him to it, comparisons to another notable disappearance, as well as the lasting impact of the story. Today, we're talking to Josh Clark from the wildly popular, long-running podcast, Stuff You Should Know. Josh and his co-hosts, Charles W. Chuck Bryant covered the Yuba County Five story back in 2018, which is actually where I heard about it. Oh. And now we've come full circle. Josh, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me, Shannon. Um, after listening to the podcast, I've become a real fan. So thank you for having me on. That is um, super nice of you and <laughs> quite shocking, but <laughs> I really appreciate it. So tell me, what initially drew you to the Yuba County Five story? I cannot for the life of me remember where I first heard of it, but I was probably looking around for unsolved mysteries, um, especially, you know, ones that a lot of people hadn't heard of. Um, And, uh, you know, at Stuff You Should Know, we've done a handful of those from time to time. Um, And this one just popped up and I started researching it and it just immediately gripped me. Um, in ways that no other unsolved mystery has. Um, and still to this day, when I think about it, when I read about it, um, one of the, one of the pleasant things about being asked to be on your podcast was I got to like, just dive into it all over again, including listening to your show. Um, and the, it, it's just taken me all over again, not just the, the kind of like part of yourself that is intrigued by unsolved mysteries and, you know, the part of your brain that likes to fill in the gaps, but, there's also parts of this case that are unlike any other um, and that that have a, it has a certain like bittersweet, sad tenderness to it that your average, you know, unsolved mystery doesn't have. Yeah. And that's sort of plays into my next question about what type of criteria do you use when determining what to cover on stuff you should know, specifically with cases like Yuba County Five, mysteries, true crime, etc. So the more unsolvable it appears to be, the more I find I'm kind of drawn to it. Um, and I, I've also just learned from feedback, Chuck and I have, that listeners tend to feel the same way. Um, it, it is very satisfying to like to do an unsolved mystery and then explain it at the end. That, but that's a totally different kind of thing. Uh, an entirely different kind of animal is the the unsolved mystery that is probably just never going to get answered. And you it forces you to, you know, leave that desire and that need for closure that we have uh, as humans. Um, it, it just forces you to get over it. <laughs> You're just going to have to get over it because we're never going to know. And I think that, that that creates like a different sensation in people when they're exposed to a case like that. So that's definitely a big one. There's a lot of true crime out there that can get really grisly and we don't necessarily shy away from that, but it's not, it's not our bread and butter. Um, <clears throat> we did an episode once on um, the Cleveland torso murders and those were super 
gruesome murders that took place um, for a while in Cleveland, appropriately enough. Um, back in, I think, like the 20s, 30s, 40s. I can't remember the first half of the 20th century, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, we shared the details, the grisly details, but we try to approach them like fairly objectively. And we, anytime something seems salacious or um, purian or something like that, we, we try to kind of sanitize it a little bit by presenting it objectively and as a fact, it, it, kind of like how it might read in like a police report or something like that. So that's another one too. Um, it's not so much like a criteria for what we choose. It's more how we kind of conduct our explanation of it. Like you said before, there's so much about the Yuba County five case that is just compelling from the, the human element it's just gripping. And then the fact that, like you said, we'll never know. So that opens the door for this real dialogue about what could have possibly happened to these men, Mm -hmm. Uh, which leads me to my next question about what do you think happened? You know, until I, um, I listened to your podcast, I, I didn't really have any super cemented guesses as to what happened. Which is strange for me because usually I'm I'm one of those people who just kind of can be like, well, this this probably happened. Like I can come. It's not like I don't have an imagination. This one, I almost didn't want to fill in gaps. I just kind of wanted to leave it almost like a like a story that you're reading, and then as you get to the last page, you notice like some of the letters and words have kind of like floated off, and now there's these blank spots, and then there's blank pages that follow that. Like there's clearly supposed to be more to this book, this kind of magical book that you're reading, but it's just not there. And and rather than try to scribble in what I think is is supposed to be there with this particular case and just with this particular case, I just kind of cl- quietly closed the book and accepted it for what it was. But after I listened to your podcast, I actually have changed my mind and, and decided that there's a good chance that this actually could be solved because of um, the, the journalism that you've done, the journalism that uh, Benji Eagle at the Sacramento Bee did as well. I think it's possible we this this might get solved. We might get some answers in the not too distant future, thanks to you guys. That is so nice of you. And and I so respect the work that Benji Eagle's done. He made it possible in terms of clearing a way for for me to to gain access to these case files. And it was through that access that I was able to do so much of the work that I did in the podcast. So I think it could be solvable as well. And, you know, in the course of, of working on this, I, my theory about what happened changed several times. And even in weighing what police at the time said, Mm -hmm. a lot of people just think these guys got lost. So let's just sort of go off on, on that theory for a minute, because a lot of people do believe that they got lost, which correlates with several theories and even other mm-hmm. podcasts about how many people go missing in national parks. And I'm not a data scientist. I haven't looked at looked at the statistics, but what do you think of this lost theory vis-a-vis disappearances in national parks? We actually did an episode on national parks and we covered that as, toward the end of it. And statistically speaking, there are some national parks. I can't remember one in Washington. It's not Olympia. It's a different one that has a uh, you're much, much likelier than other places to go missing. 
But then if you look at the national park system as a whole, you're actually much less likely to go missing than than you are outside of national parks, like say in a city or something like that, which is kind of surprising because national parks definitely have a reputation for being these kind of mysterious places where people just disappear and they're never heard from again. And I think that um, that really taking statistics out of it and just kind of going back to the perception, I think we have like as, as a, um, a, a species, a real wariness about the woods and the potential of getting lost in the woods. I mean, like if you look at just fairy tales alone and the tales we tell our children, stay out of the woods, all these bad things can happen to you. That's where witches live. That's where um, wolves that will dress up like your grandma live. Um, and, 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 you know, you'll go missing and you'll die. So I think just being indoctrinated into that idea, that really, I think, ancient animal idea that the woods can be a dangerous place. When we hear stories about people going missing in the woods, it really kind of unlocks this this kind of like ancient fear that, you know, we don't really dwell on much day to day in modern society because we live in such developed areas that we're, we rarely encounter the woods unless we go out and actively seek it. So I think that that's, I think it's more perception than anything, especially if you apply statistics to it. Um, but to get back to your, to your question, I think that um, I originally was one of the ones who were like, I, th- I think they might've just gotten lost. I, th- I think I said in, in the podcast we did in 2018 that I, I hung it on an economics theory called sunk cost fallacy, where, where it became to them like just over the hill, maybe there was help, like th- like there was maybe somebody, you know, in a, a ranger station or there was a restaurant or there's somebody's house or something just over the hill, just a little further. And as they get further and further along, it makes less and less sense to turn back even though far and away the most sensible thing you could do is turn around and go back down the way you came and just keep going you know past the way you came these these men were all cognitively challenged in one way or another you can make the argument that Gary Mathias was but he was at the very least mentally ill you don't have to be mentally ill you don't have to be cognitively challenged to get tripped up by sunk cost fallacy and if you're in the middle of blizzard-like conditions or the aftermath of a blizzard and it's really cold and there's 10 or 20 foot snowdrifts that you're walking uphill over uh, and you combine that with sunk cost fallacy, it just is, it, to me, it's always been really possible. They just kept going and ended up dying of exposure because they just didn't turn around. So in that sense, it actually made sense to me that they would keep going up the mountain, especially if you tie in the idea that perhaps there was something that had scared them or shocked them below the mountain or down back down the other direction down the mountain. If you put those two things together, to me, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, you know, I spoke to a, a man named Dan Newman, who works with Butte County Search and Rescue. And he talked a little bit about that, about just, you know, this idea that you get when you're lost, that help is just over the hill. I think that a lot of people conflate the the cognitive impairments that these men had with getting lost. And I think that's the thing is like, you don't have to, like you said, you don't have to have cognitive impairments to get lost. So I think it's totally possible. Speaking of that lore of getting lost in the woods, the Yuba County Five case has been called America's Dyatlov Pass incident, which was a group of Russian hikers who on an expedition or on a hiking trip somehow perished in the Ural Mountains in 1958, but under very mysterious circumstances. You covered 
the Dyatlov Pass incident, also in 2018. What is your take? Yeah, so I mean, both of those cases do have some parallels, you know, in that they both happen in the wilderness. They're both totally inexplicable. They they both happen to a group of like able-bodied people who um, that makes the whole thing more perplexing. And in the Dyatlov um, incident, they were like experienced backcountry hikers. They were in, in the Ural Mountains in an extraordinarily dangerous environment where they were really far away from help um, and uh, where a lot of things could just go wrong all of a sudden. Um, but yeah, all of them, if I remember correctly, all of them were very experienced hikers and they, it's not like they had no business being where they were. Um, so that actually makes their the incident even stranger because they, the, those hikers should have, nothing quite so bizarre should have happened to them. And then I think one of the other things that makes Dyatlov so uh, engrossing is that some of them, but not all of them, but some of them suffered really horrific uh, physical trauma. Um, and probably died from those wounds that the trauma was so bad in some cases. Um, and then in other cases, some people didn't suffer trauma, but they were found wearing just one boot and their pajamas, or they had cut their tent open rather than using, you know, the flap to exit. They had to get out of there so fast. So um, there's a lot of like weird puzzles and mysteries that you have in Dyatlov um, that you don't have in, in um, the Yuba County 5 case. Um, with, you know, Ted Weir is a, a, a really good um, exception to that. There's so much strange evidence around his death in, in the site where he was, you know, found. But if you look at like Jackie Hewitt and Jack, Madru uh, Jack Madruga and um, uh, who was with Bill Madruga Sterling. with Bill Sterling? Yeah. If you look at those three, when they were found, they were in such bad shape. They I don't think they could determine what their cause of death was. Um so there was no evidence of trauma. There wasn't anything like that. They, they, I think they suspect that it was exposure. Um, as far as as far as like what happened with Dyatlov, because there's so many weird little tantalizing, odd, unexplained clues, um, I find it engrossing in a way. But to me, I think the Yuba County Five case is much more engrossing. Um, but I I think. I'm one of those people who's like the, the most, you know, simplest scientific explanation is almost certainly the right one. And I think back one or two years ago, some scientists did a, a, a modeling, um, they a, a simulation of an avalanche, a certain type of avalanche, where like these very heavy ice ridden blocks of snow could slide a fairly short distance, but pick up enough momentum that um, they generated a lot of force when they impact whatever they were impacting, and that that could conceivably explain what happened to the Dyatlov hikers, that they had cut a little um, shoulder into the side of the snow, or into the side of the mountain, to build a shelter for their tent, and they accidentally destabilized a, basically an ice shelf right above them, and that slid down and, and did that. And it's not like a slam dunk case, but to me, that kind of thing is a lot more of a slam dunk case than, you know, a Yeti or <laughs> UFOs or radiation poisoning, which has never made any sense to me whatsoever because they suffered physical trauma in a lot of cases. So, or the KGB. You know, yeah, yeah. So it's just, yeah. I mean, yeah, that they think they stumbled into some some weird remote training exercise or something like that. Um, in, but I mean, in all of those cases, you can say, well, this, you know, Yetis don't exist. Um, who knows about UFOs? Um, 
the KGB probably wouldn't have left so much evidence behind, yada, yada, yada. So you come back to the most reasonable explanation to me um, is the is the likeliest one. And I know that I'm sure a lot of people find that very boring and unimaginative. But but for for me personally, when, when I can explain it like that, it lets me get back to what were those people experiencing? Like, what did their families go through afterward? Like, what, what was the result of all this? Like, I, I can stop thinking about, you know, whether it was aliens or something like that and move on to like the, the more important stuff, I think, because you get so wrapped up in what happened that you, 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 um, you get blinders on about all the other, even more important stuff. And that usually is the human aspect of the whole thing. Well, and that was something that really emerged as a theme in in this case. I mean, like beyond the mystery, beyond all the macabre details, which I mean, Mm. there were a lot, there were these families and this long period of waiting and not knowing. And journalist Cynthia Gorney, whose article you cited in, Mm -hmm. um, in your episode, she was really the first person I knew of that zeroed in on that it was like this was a tragedy we don't know what happened I don't know that we'll ever know what happened but let's put that aside for a minute and think about the people behind this tragedy who are suffering and to me that was so much more compelling than anything else because it allowed you to really connect with the details of the case in a way that did not feel sensationalized or or dirty. Right. I want to move on. We've we've talked a little bit about search and rescue efforts. I know that you also covered some search and rescue methods in some of your your past episodes. What can you sort of glean? So um, we actually we had a book come out uh, a couple of years ago, I think, um, called The Incomplete Compendium. Um, and it's just a bunch of different chapters, it's almost like, you know, written little short podcasts on different topics. And one of them was getting lost in the woods. Um, and it was based on this article, this, this psychologist wrote who had researched all these cases of people getting lost in the woods who were um, ultimately rescued and what they did wrong. And um he came up with this handful of um, of basically common traits or, or behaviors that you can expect somebody somebody's going to do one or more of if they get lost in the woods. And essentially, the one thing that you're supposed to do if you get lost in the woods is stay in place. And um, hopefully, you've let somebody know that you're going off to the woods. You should ex- you should be back by this time. And um, that if you're not back by this time they will notice and then they'll send somebody to go get you, um, in which case staying in place makes a lot of sense. Uh, If you didn't do all that, staying in place still makes more sense because eventually somebody's probably going to figure out that you're missing. Somebody's going to probably figure out where you went. They're going to find your car that you parked like along the road and it's going to be weird that it's been sitting there for five days or something and they're going to come find you. But instead, most people... um, Almost all people who get lost in the woods keep walking 
and they start walking in different directions. Usually it's very random and there's like no purpose to it whatsoever. Some more experienced um, people who uh, spend time in the woods will choose a direction and they'll start walking that direction. And um, there's no rhyme or reason to why they chose that direction, but they do. Uh, other people um, have been known to like uh, follow a stream or something like that. And that's not necessarily a bad idea because eventually water will probably lead you to civilization. But um, they become so fixated on following that stream or whatever that they'll walk. They've, they've been known to walk through people's backyards and keep going rather than going to that house far away that, that they see off in the distance because they're following the stream. They get so laser focused on it. So all of that, the upshot of it that I took from this paper and that we kind of turned into the, the chapter in our book was that people like lose their minds when they get lost in the woods. I, I think panic sets in really quick. I think it's probably not having been lost in the woods, I can't say firsthand, but I would guess it's probably a type of panic that's unlike any other kind of panic you can experience, maybe aside from being underwater for too long. Um, and it just takes over and makes you do really strange, unusual behaviors that are actually counterproductive to your rescue. So, you know, when we wrote that chapter, when we did the episode on search and rescue, um, that really stood out to me that people just behave uh, in really bizarre ways. And I think when you take that into account, um, you know, where these these men were all found in different states and different places and the decisions that they make, they made um, seem a little more um, normal, a little more realistic, a little less bewildering, because I think they were in large part behaving like anybody who got lost in the woods would behave. I totally agree with you. And, you know, when I was doing research on the story, specifically about patterns of people who were lost, I found very similar information. And this will be sort of like a PSA for listeners. Uh, if you're lost in the woods, please stay in one place. But I also found that it's because of that panic you talked about, it's incredibly hard to stay in one place because it, it almost near impossible. I want to I wanna go ahead and ask our last question, which was about how you think the men's cognitive impairments affected how people looked and still look at the case because obviously their cognitive impairments are talked about a lot when when referencing the Yuba County 5 story. So this to me is the most important question when you approach this this uh, topic even more than than why or what happened um, because I think it really kind of is a it's a mirror that that we hold up to ourselves when we look in on this case. And I, I don't think that you can blame people who just kind of casually come into it, read a little bit about it, um, and then walk away, uh, carry with them this perception that these men were cognitively impaired. They definitely didn't use that term, you know, when they were reporting on it back in the, in the seventies when it happened. Um, but, but that, that people walk away from it like, well, they just made some, you know, bad mistakes, some decisions, some poor decisions, and they got, you know, they died as a result. And it's very sad. And I think that not only just the casual, you know, um, viewer, listener, reader who, who comes across the case uh, might come up with that kind of um, uh, idea. The, from, you know, listening to your podcast, clearly law enforcement had that same idea, too. 
that these these guys were just you know what 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 can you expect if if you know five guys like these get lost in the woods of course this is going to happen and so much so that you know that that one part um where where you talk about i think jackie hewitt's father um came across the uh, search and rescue guys on horseback just sitting around drinking beer rather than looking for his son that boiled my blood you know and you could hear it in his voice too what it did to him um so i i think that that's one facet of how it affects how people approach the case and i think it really deeply affected how people um, investigated the case while it was actively being investigated. But then there's a whole other aspect to it that I think that same thing provides. And that is that it makes this case so much more heartbreaking than, say, like the Dyatlov Pass case, which is extremely tragic. I mean, uh, I, I can't remember, was it nine hikers? Some absurd number of, of like young adults died um, gruesomely in a remote location in the Ural Mountains. That's objectively a tragedy. Um, in the same way, the Yuba County Five, they all died uh, of, you know, in, in some pretty bad ways, mysterious ways, but out in the woods of exposure of starvation uh, while they were lost and scared. That is objectively a tragedy too. But the fact that these men were cognitively impaired it strikes like a, it pulls on a, a heartstring that the Dyatlov incident doesn't in me. Um, that these these men were like lived lives that the rest of us can only like aspire to, and like were you know rays of sunshine and happiness for the people in their lives, um, people they met. Um, and this is something that Cynthia Gorney like really got across to me, and that really kind of got the 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 cases hooks in me. Um, one of the things she reported on was that uh, Ted Weir used to like to call up Bill Sterling when he, 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 when he found like a funny name in the phone book and he'd call Bill and read him the name, you know, and they'd have a, like a laugh about it, which means Ted Weir was going through the phone book looking for funny names to call Bill Sterling about, you know, or else he would read the paper. And if there was some like funny article, he would call Bill Sterling about that too. And then, um, the, just the the human aspect that surrounds this case is somehow more human than your average disappearance. And I think to me that that's kept the, the interest in the case um, even more than, you know, the, the mystery of it. It's its own special case that I, I don't think there's any other one like it. And it's it to me, it's more gut wrenching than your average disappearance. I agree. And when a young person dies, you know, there there's really two deaths to grieve, the actual physical death and the promise of their life. And that was a big part of why I personally and the, the team at Mopac Audio felt like it was so important to really share that side of the story and to shift the narrative away from morbid mystery, the macabre, even though that is very much so part of the story, but to focus it more on the fact that these were people and these are men with lives and very real challenges that most of us can't even imagine. So thank you so much, Josh. It's It's been a pleasure talking with you today. And I so appreciate you coming on the podcast and basically rapping with me about a case that I've been obsessed with <laughs> uh, for a very long time. So I, I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. And thank you also for the amazing reporting you guys did. Like that was, it just really filled so many gaps that I had. And, you know, the family interviews that just brought such humanity to it, to a case that already was loaded with humanity before. Now it's like even, even, even more so. So thank you for what you guys did. I really appreciate it. Josh, co-host of Stuff You Should Know, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This has been a Mopac Audio production. Our executive producers are Jonathan Nauzardin and Jonathan Beal. Chris Moss is supervising producer. And I'm Shannon McGarvey, writer and senior producer. Editing by Tanner Moore. Music by Blake Maples. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.